Those of you who may have come in after the greeting, good morning again and welcome. We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. We are picking up this morning with our continuing study of Paul's letter to the Romans, concentrating uh, on Paul's partial midway sort of summary found in the closing words of chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, of which verses 35 to 39 will be our specific concern today. That's printed in your bulletin for you to follow along if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Now, from the beginning of this letter, this uh, theological resume, if you will, of Paul's, uh, he has been talking about the woeful condition of the world due to the universal unrighteousness that has really been the sad inheritance of all humanity ever since the beginning and because of Adam's sin in particular. But Paul has talked about more than just that in this letter. He's done so because God in his great mercy has determined from all eternity to be gracious and to set apart and to save a people for himself, people that he has determined that he will love deeply, that he will redeem fully, that he will forgive completely, that he will restore flawlessly, and he will bring permanently into his family as his adopted children for all eternity. And the means by which God has done this, and which has been a central theme of this letter, is by crediting his people with a righteousness that is a right standing with himself, giving them a not guilty verdict that they did not and could not have earned or deserved, but which has been earned and deserved by someone else in their place, namely by his son Jesus Christ. And this right standing with God is then conveyed to God's people by grace and through, through the instrument of faith. And those are the sort of things that Paul's been majoring on since the opening verses of this letter, which is to say, Paul has been talking a lot about what God has done for us in and through Christ through the first five chapters. Following that, after taking a couple of chapters, six and seven, to deal with some anticipated objections that people might have to his teaching, and in particular to his strong emphasis on the grace of God. Paul then shifts his focus a little bit when he gets to chapter 8, to talking not only about what God has done for us, but also what God has done in us, and is doing in us, through the working of the Holy Spirit of God. And in talking about these things, what Paul has been doing essentially is describing and explaining the outworking and the application of this tremendous salvation that Christ has achieved for us. And so when you kind of step back and you look at the movement of the letter as a whole up to this point, it's as if Paul is saying this. He's saying, look, here's the problem, our unrighteousness. Uh, Here's what God's done about it. He's given us his righteousness. And then here's what it means. Here's how it works. Here's how it's applied to your life and your heart and your mind. This is why any of this matters. That, in a nutshell, is what's been going on in Romans up to this point. And Paul's words at the end of chapter 8 are kind of a summary of all that. They're tying up what he's been saying throughout this letter and before he kind of takes this very different kind of turn in discussion in chapters 9 to 11. At the same time, while Paul is using this summary to tie up some things from the whole first half of the letter, he's also bringing to a conclusion some of the specific things he's been saying only recently here in chapter 8. 
For example, at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul began with a very strong declaration that there is no condemnation, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here, at the conclusion of the chapter, starting with verse 31, Paul has come full circle. He's come right back to that same theme, supplying some further and even stronger assurances on this point of there being no condemnation. And let's just think about that for a moment. That is the nature of the assurance that Paul is supplying just here. When Paul takes the time to reassure the Roman Christians and us through them that there is, in fact, no more condemnation for them, when he strengthens that point, as he does in verses 31 to 34, he wants the Romans and us with them to understand the judicial security that we have. Now, what do I mean by that? What is condemnation all about? Simply put, condemnation is about the administration of a judicial verdict on account of sin or wrongdoing. Isn't that it? And so when Paul assures them that there's no condemnation awaiting them, he's assuring God's people that there is no judicial threat that they might face at any point now or in the future. There's no threat, judicial threat that they might face on account of God's holiness and their sinfulness. And Paul has gone to great lengths to not only declare that such condemnation is not in the cards for God's people, but as we saw last week, he's made it clear why that is the case. Namely, There's no condemnation in our future because God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can successfully or effectively be against us because, after all, it's God we're talking about here. There's no condemnation, secondly, in our future because the basis of our condemnation would have to be our sin. But Christ has already died for our sin. In other words, our sin was already held against him. And since it was already held against him, it can no longer be held against us. (coughs) Thirdly, there's no condemnation in our future because the only one who's in any position to bring any sort of effective damning accusation against us has chosen expressly not to do so. Quite to the contrary, he's chosen to exonerate us, to justify us. And finally, there's no condemnation in our future because the offended party, the one who will one day come to judge the world, Jesus, that one is currently seated at the right hand of God in this position of authority and readiness. And from that position, what is he doing? What did the scriptures say? Is he condemning us? No. Quite the opposite. He's commending us. He's praying for us. He's talking to the Father about us on our behalf For our benefit. That's what we saw last week as Paul, in this closing summary, reminds us this important truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is for us with all that that entails. Now, that's a strong assurance. That's a very strong assurance all by itself. But let me tell you, that's only part of the story. Because The assurance of no condemnation, while a great thing, even a very great thing, is also one that primarily has in view what happens to us after 
this life is over. Isn't that right? It's reminding us that when the day of judgment comes, when, uh, when Christ returns, when all the books are opened, and all humanity, past, present, and future, stands before Christ in that final reckoning, on that day, we will be finally declared to be free and clear. In other words, the justification that is certainly true for us right now will be consummately and declaratively trumpeted on that day. But again, as wonderful as that is, it's still only part of the story. There's more here for us than just the assurance that is ours, judicially speaking. There's also here an assurance that might be termed more personal or perhaps relational in nature. It's the assurance that's seen in verses 35 to 39, which picks up on this idea of foreknowledge, which we've already seen, and, and which is God's determination to forelove, to set his love in advance on his people. The love of Christ, the love of God for us, and the assurance that comes from that love, from the affection of God, that is what's mainly in view in these closing five verses. And so that being the case, that's what we'll be thinking about for the rest of our time this morning. Before we look at that together, please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, please accompany us. And not only that, please guide us and lead us through these verses by your Spirit so that we see at least some of the richness that is here. We are under no illusions. We know that the most we can do this morning is dip our toes into the ocean of significance to be found here. And yet even that, Father, we know from experience will be enough to move us, to grow us, to change us, to challenge us, to draw us in even closer to you. So please reveal who you are more clearly through this time. Reveal who we are just as clearly. Rebuke us where necessary. Encourage us where possible. Finish what you have promised to finish within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans eight thirty-five to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The verses just read to you can be divided, I believe, into two parts. The first part is verses 35 to 37. Essentially, it's saying this. There is no trouble, there is no hardship that any enemy of Christ can bring upon you that can separate you from the love of Christ. 
Right? There's no trouble or hardship that any enemy of Christ can bring upon you that can separate you from the love of Christ. Verse 35, Paul starts out with the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is, he asked rhetorically about a person. But he goes on to describe a number of situations or hard realities, which makes you think, perhaps he should have started out by asking what and not who. But as you read further along, you see that he clearly views the things listed in verse 35 as realities that come about at the hand of those who are the enemies of God. The quotation from Psalm 44 found in verse 36 is a confirmation of this reading of the passage. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's an interesting psalm that Paul quotes from. Because in the first three verses of that psalm, the psalmist is remembering the ways that God has in the past delivered his people from their enemies. In the first three verses, the psalmist is remembering uh, being told all of these wonderful stories about what God has done by his father, by his family. The psalmist then, on the basis of these things, goes on to declare in the next five verses his complete confidence in God and not in his own strength to deliver him from his present distressing circumstances. But then... In the next 18 verses, the remainder of the psalm, in fact, he expresses his feelings of rejection and disgrace and asks why God has not yet delivered him from his enemies. And that's where the quotation comes from. In essence, then, the psalm is saying this. I know that you've delivered your people in the past. My parents told me all about it. And I firmly believe that you can do it still. I'm confident in your strength and not my own. So, why haven't you done it yet? Why am I still rejected? Why am I still disgraced? Why am I scorned by my enemies? When, asks the psalmist, when are you going to act? And the closing words of the psalm are especially significant as he directly addresses God. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Clearly the psalmist feels that God can deliver and save. And he's pleading for God to do what he knows God can do. What's also clear is that the psalmist is puzzled. By God's failure to do so yet. However, please notice. In spite of all that. To what does the psalmist appeal at the end? At the very end of the psalm. He appeals to the love of God. Redeem us, he says, for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying even in the midst of all these hardships he's just described in the psalm, he expresses still at the very end, he expresses his confidence in the steadfastness of God's love. He doesn't doubt that. 
Whatever else the psalmist knows and believes, he knows this, that the presence of hardship does not mean the absence of God's love in his life. He knows that. That's why he's making the appeal. The Apostle Paul, with his words here at the end of Romans 8, is showing his solidarity with the psalmist on these very same perspectives. And in the process, he's affirming two realities, Paul is. For starters, Paul is certainly affirming this truth. Being loved by God does not protect you from anything. It does not shield you from anything. It does not make you immune from anything in this life. Let that sink in. Being loved by God does not protect you from anything. It does not shield you from anything. It does not make you immune to anything in this life. Let it sink in because that is contrary to a lot of what is often said in God's name these days. Being loved by God does not mean you will not suffer at the hands of God's enemies. It does not mean bad things, hard things, even horrible things cannot happen to you. As the psalmist has affirmed, God's people are being killed all the day long. That's not a hypothetical statement by the psalmist. Hatred for God, as expressed through the hatred of God's people, is a continuing reality in this world. It was there from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. It has been present every step of the way since then. As Stott points out in his commentary, the very people to whom Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Christians, would in just a few short years from the reception of this letter, just a handful of years after this letter was received, they themselves would be the victims of Nero's horrendous persecutions, some of them being dipped in tar, hoisted on poles, and lit on fire for the entertainment of the sadistic emperor. Human torches. Unless we think that these things are far away and removed from us here in the West in 2014, let me assure you they are not. As one writer puts it, we must pause as we are tempted to think of persecution as something that's part of a misty past. It's part of Romans feeding Christians to lions and things that happened way back when in the days of the Reformation. Over against that, please remember this startling fact. That during the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than all the 19 centuries prior put together. More Christians have died for their faith in the last 100 plus years than in the previous 1900 combined. Persecution is not a thing in the misty past for most Christians in the two-thirds world. Indeed, Paul himself was no stranger to these things. Listen to Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. You've got to understand the context of 2 Corinthians. He's, he's arguing against people who are boasting about crazy things, and he's taking up their rhetoric. But Paul says, I, uh, I am a servant of Christ with far greater la- labors, uh, Far more imprisonments, says Paul, with countless beatings. This is Paul. 
often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's Romans 8, verse 35. Lived out by Paul. This is the same Paul, though, who speaks here in Romans 8 with full confidence about the unwavering love of Christ for his people. Paul sees no contradiction in any of this. The God who allows his people to endure every one of the things listed in verse 35 is the God whose love for his people is steadfast and sure. Indeed, Paul takes it a step further when he asserts quite boldly, in all these things, he says... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is a staggering statement. Paul says unashamedly that God's people will endure all kinds of things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. God's people endure all those things. And yet, in those very moments, when they are enduring those things, they are not victims. They are not losers. They are, says Paul, more than conquerors. That is a staggering statement. How can Paul say that? What in the world is Paul talking about? It seems to be utterly counterintuitive. How can Paul say such a thing? He can say it for at least two reasons. Firstly, he says he can say it because it's experientially true. Paul knows this. This is the Paul who, along with Silas, was taken before the rulers in Philippi, brought up on ridiculous charges, and was beaten with rods for who knows how long. The passage just said many times they were beaten. And then finally, with Silas, thrown into prison with their feet fastened in stocks. And what is the response of Paul and Silas? Later that evening, around midnight, Acts 16 records that Paul and Silas were in their jail cell praying and singing hymns to God after getting the beating of their life. Was Paul conquered or was he a conqueror? After World War II, the Chinese leader Mao Zedong engaged in a sustained, brutal, systematic attempt at wiping out the church in China. Those attempts utterly failed. Later, the government, unable to get rid of the church, tried instead to manage it through a state-run pseudo-church. This too failed and forced the genuine Christians, the real church, to go underground with the result that there was an explosion of house churches throughout China Today, China grudgingly admits that there are roughly 28 million Christians in the country, but insiders and experts will tell you that the true number is probably as high as 130 million. History is replete with example after example of this sort of thing. God's people suffering amazing hardship at the hands of the enemies of God, and yet their spirits are not squashed 
their hopes are not crushed. Their voices are not silenced. Their songs of praise continue. Their joy is not diminished. In short, their disposition is not a function of their condition. And the world looks upon this sort of thing typically with bewilderment and amazement. The enemies of God sit back and watch this sort of thing happening all the time and they cannot explain it, nor can they dismiss it. But the overwhelming testimony of history is that you cannot shut the Christians up. The more you mow them down, the louder they sing. The more you attempt to repress and manage the church, the more unmanageable it gets. God's church will not be managed. God's spirit working supernaturally, strengthening his people when they are at their absolute weakest. God's spirit cannot and will not be restrained. And so from an experiential standpoint, Paul certainly can say that God's people are more than conquerors, even and especially in the face of hardship. But there's another reason Paul can say this. Beyond the experiential reality of how God's people have consistently responded in the midst of persecution and hardship, there's a theological reality that Paul alludes to, which I don't want you to miss. It's found in the phrase, we are more than conquerors, important phrase at the end, through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. Well, Paul talks about him who loved us. That word, loved, is grammatically significant. The particular tense of that word is one that typically is used to refer to a completed particular action or event. In other words, when Paul talks about him, that is Jesus, who loved us, he's most likely thinking about a particular occasion when Christ's love was clearly on display, which is certainly a reference to the cross of Christ. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that even in the wake of all kinds of incredible hardship coming at the hands of God's enemies, we are more than conquerors, not only in an experiential sense, but in a theological sense. We are conquerors through Christ, through his death on the cross in our place for our sake. The victory that he achieved over sin and death, that victory is our victory too through Christ. Even though as God's people we are not immune to or shielded from the possibility of enduring great hardship for Christ's sake, even those things will not and they cannot have any ultimate power or ill effect over us. No loss, no matter how devastating, no grief, no matter how consuming, no pain, no matter how intense, none of those things will have the last word with us. None of them can separate us from the demonstrated love of God at the cross or from the benefits and blessings that are eternally ours because of it. So verses 35 to 37, Paul's assuring God's people, there's no trouble, no hardship that might come at the hands of the enemies of God. No persecution so severe that it can in any way separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But Paul isn't quite finished. He wants his readers to understand the comprehensive nature of the security they have as a result of the love of God. He wants them to understand that they are secure, not just in those circumstances that may result from persecution, but actually in every circumstance. And so Paul takes his readers, verse 38 to 39, through a second list of things 
that cannot separate the people of God from the love of God. List A, verse 35. List B, verses 38, 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as with that first list in verse 35, there appears to be a common theme here in verse 38. In the first list, the organizing principle seems to have been all those things that we've seen that the people of God might experience at the hands of the enemies of God. In the second list, while we're not absolutely certain about the significance of everything mentioned, for example, the word powers there in the list is a little bit of a mystery, but the overall point that Paul is making seems clear enough. Through a series of basically contrasting pairs, Paul's, what he's trying to do here with this second list is paint as broad of a picture as possible. He's pushing the frame of the picture out as far as it can go in every direction. So, for example, he refers to death and life, two extremes, like the two ends of a continuum, death on the one end, life on the other. They're the two realities, aren't they, that are the bookends of life here on earth as we know it on this planet. So Paul says, neither death nor life, and the implication is, or anything in between those two bookends can separate us. And he refers to angels and rulers as another contrasting pair. In all likelihood, the particular angels he has in view here are those angels that are in fact fallen angels, corrupted beings, since it would make little sense to refer to good angels as something that might attempt to separate the people of God from the love of God. So understood in that way, you see here another set of extremes, contrasting pairs, powerful supernatural enemies on one end of the scale, rulers, powerful human enemies on the other end of the scale. Those cannot separate us from the love of God. He talks about things present, things to come. Again, a contrasting pair with all those realities that currently are, that currently exist, one end, and things that have not yet come into being on the other. Future things. Another way to say it is that Paul's talking about things that are known and things that are yet unknown. Even those things cannot separate us from the love of God. He then talks about powers, which is not presented as a pair and which is, as I've already said, something of a mystery, but then jumps immediately to another pair, neither height nor depth. Again, focusing on extremes. And the point of all these is, the message of these things is, Summarized finally with that phrase, right? Nor anything else in all creation. Just in case he's missed something uh, or neglected some dimension, that's sort of the sweep the kitchen, the catch-all phrase, nor anything else in all creation. So you can see what Paul's doing here, right? He's pushing the framework out as far as it can go. He's expanding horizons in every possible direction, Death and life, supernatural or natural powers, things known, things unknown, time and space, height and depth. There is nothing, I mean nothing, says Paul, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no power so great. There is no reality so grim. There is no dungeon so deep, no place so remote that it can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It simply cannot happen. It cannot be done. What an amazing assurance Paul has given us here. With those words, Paul brings his midterm summary to a close 
in, I think, a very powerful manner. And if you step back just a little bit, you see that in reality, the assurances found just here in verses 35 to 39 are actually a part of a whole chain of assurances at Paul's giving. And he's been giving them ever since verse 28 of chapter 8. If you look back across the landscape of these verses, what you see is Paul stacking assurance upon assurance upon assurance upon assurance. Verse 28, we saw the security of God's providence. The fact that all things are worked together for the good of those who love God. Verse 29 to 30, we saw the security of God's purposes. He's committed to both conforming us to Christ's image and confirming us in God's forever family as brothers and sisters. Verse 31 to 34, we saw the security of God's provision. He's dealt fully with our unrighteousness. He's fully satisfied the demands of his holiness. He's credited us with his righteousness, so there is no condemnation. And finally, in verse 35 to 39, we see the security of God's affection. The security of his providence, of his purposes, of his provision, and of his affection. The fact that there is no hardship, and no person, no power, no circumstance, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a comfort that is. What a monumental, unassailable security we have in this God who has loved us long, loved us well, and he will love us all the way home. Let's pray. Father, help us help us to believe these things when we most need to believe them. Please follow us home with these truths. Please make these traveling truths that we recall that minister to us, that we use to minister to others. At just those moments when we are tempted because of life or death or hardship or anything else mentioned and things not even mentioned, things unknown, things yet to come, whenever we're tempted because of those things to doubt your, your verdict on us, your love for us. Father, remind us of this, the, the unassailability, the security of these truths, of your steadfast love that cannot be shaken or removed. And Father, use those things to draw us to yourself, to grow in thankfulness and gratitude and in a life that reflects those realities. Father, change us by your kindness and by your mercy. Break us down with that. Make us like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support uh, this church or a number of different uh, ministries or agencies that we support as a congregation.